how important it is that as we, as children of God, go through life, that we know a biblical process and a right process to decide and to, and to follow what God's will is for our life. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I want us to look at verse number 6 tonight, and we'll look at a couple of key words. You're going to notice a pattern here in just a moment, and so let's go into tonight what Scripture has for us. The Bible says, Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Look at verse number 8, please. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. Do you notice that word sober there? That word sober speaks of a serious mind, of a mind that's steadfast, a mind that's taking in the gravity of a situation or decision at hand. Take your Bibles and go all over just a couple of books to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. Uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we see Paul addressing the pastor, the bishop. And notice as, Timoth- as Paul addresses this young pastor, he teaches him of a sober mind. Notice the Bible says, A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. Paul continues in this instruction and actually instructs the pastor's wife. Look at verse number 11, the same chapter. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanders, sober, faithful in all things. Go over to the book of Titus, please, with me. Again, Paul is instructing, and as he's instructing, he's giving instruction to the pastor, the pastor's wife, to be sober. Titus, likewise, a minister, a preacher of the gospel, And notice how Paul describes the pastoral trait of a pastor. The Bible says in Titus chapter 1, verse number 8, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate. One of the qualities that a pastor is to have is to be sober-minded. Look at Titus chapter 2, verse number uh, 2 with me. Excuse me, just a page over or across the page, depending on where your Bible is. Uh, Falls as far as the layout there. Titus chapter 2, look at verse number 2. The Bible says that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. The Bible teaches us that the aged men who are teaching 
the next generation or teaching others, the aged men teaching the younger, the elder teaching the younger. You wonder where we get Sunday school and where we get crash and uh, even discipleship of an older Christian teaching a younger Christian. This is the very statement right there. This is the very verse that we get this context from. It is an older teaching a younger, uh, whether it's spiritually or even physical age. And that individual teaching is to be sober, serious of mind. Notice what the Bible says in verse number four of the same chapter. That they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children. The Bible teaches us that not only are the men to be sober-minded as they teach a younger generation, but the Bible teaches that the women teaching other women and teaching the younger, uh, younger generations as well are to be sober. Are you catching a similar pattern here? God speaks a lot about this sober mind. Notice what the Bible tells us in verse number 6 of the same chapter in, in Titus. The Bible says, Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. God speaks a lot about a sober mind, a serious mind. Understanding the breadth and the seriousness of a decision not something that's just flippant and something that we make because it feels right or because it's something that goes along with what we've always wanted to do, but rather a decision that is based with all brevity, with all seriousness. Uh, let me give you a couple, a few more portions of Scripture here tonight. Go to 1 Peter, please. 1 Peter chapter 1. Again, just go keep going back in the Scripture here for just a moment. Look at what the Bible teaches us in verse number 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, we don't see that phraseology there a whole lot. So what does gird up your loins of, the, uh, of, of your mind mean? Well, it's borrowing to a cultural uh, 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 a trend at that moment or a cultural uh, attire at that moment. The culture at that time was to wear long, flowing garments. And if someone had to move quickly or to run quickly, they would gather up those long, flowing garments and they would gird up their loins. They would gird up that extra material and they would tuck it into their belt. They would make sure that it's not loose and gonna cause them to trip. They would make sure that they could run quickly by girding up the loins. Notice how Peter addresses this. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. Be sober. And hope to the end for the grace that is brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter addresses it in this way of girding up the looseness of our minds to be sober-minded. What is that speaking of? It's speaking of a mental state that is sloppy. It's all over. It truly goes everywhere. <laughs> Have we been there over these last 12 months? <laughs> What's happening? Where are we going? And we feel like our mind is running a thousand different directions and we're trying to go all these different ways. Peter says, gird up, gather those thoughts together, concise them as it were, so that you can press forward. 
In essence, he's saying, gird up the sloppy thinking. Gird up the disheveled look of the mind. Gather it together to be serious for the moment at hand. Notice what the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse number 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Look at chapter 5, verse number 8. Familiar verse. We know this verse well. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. The Bible teaches us very clearly to be sober, to be of serious mind. When it comes to our decision-making process, we are to be spiritually focused upon the decision that God wants. We ought to be vigilant and sober in our thinking. Go back to the book of Ephesians, if you would, please. Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 14. Again, I'm just laying a foundation, laying an introduction here. We'll get to the meat of things here in just a moment. Ephesians chapter 5, notice what the Bible says in verse number 14. Wherefore, he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Paul here is addressing the those who may be spiritually asleep or spiritually unaware. He's telling them to awake or to arise out of your sleep. In other words, to think clearly with maturity. It is approaching life carefully, in essence, with purpose. It's not just going through life, just whatever happens, happens, but rather having a serious mindset that is focused upon what God has for us with a purpose. Look at verse number 15. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. That word circumspectly means to look everywhere at once. God teaches us as we go forward, as we think, that we ought to walk circumspectly. As we are sober-minded, we ought to look all directions. We ought to look at all the different angles. We ought to look at all the different situations, how it's going to affect, and all the different things that come into the role of a decision and to walk carefully as wise. Notice what he says in verse number 16. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding, notice this statement, what the will of the Lord is. God has a purpose and a plan. And we are a part of that purpose and plan. We'll address more of that in just a moment. But how incredible it is that God enables us to have a decision-making process that begins with a soberness, a sober mind. If you go to clean out your garage, you're going to look for some things to clean out your garage with. You're going to get the broom. You're going to get the dustpan. You might get the shop vac. 
You might get um, even, some, even a trolley if you have some heavy things that you need to move around from one place to another. You'll get some bin liners and such. You're going to do what? You're going to prepare for the work that's ahead. You're going to prepare for that which you have a, a, a job at hand for. You know, when it comes to decision-making process, we likewise ought to be prepared. In the next 10 weeks, we're going to go through the first five weeks of the tools that we need, the resources, we're going to call them, that we need through the decision-making process. What tools do we need to have when we approach a decision? What are some things that we need to make sure that we have at the hand, at ready, so when the decision is coming, we know how to spiritually make that decision. And then the last five weeks, we're going to be speaking of process, of how do we make that decision. Here's the tools we gather, and now the process that we have at hand, and how we can truly go forward with the decision that God is putting up, or allowing us to decide to make. Think of a dangerous activity, something maybe like... Uh, 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 rock climbing. Uh, a few months ago, my wife and I saw, I think it was Solo or something like, I what, what it was called, um, uh, or Free Climb or something like that, where it was a documentary of a man who was free climbing uh, a huge, treacherous portion of Yosemite National Park in the United States. And he, for months and months and months, prepared and mapped out different ways and handholds, climbed part of it and took the maps that others had made of this huge sheer, seemingly sheer facing rock and uh, 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 took those maps and collated them together and put them and saw different avenues that he could try to get up because it had never been climbed by free hand before and it was going to be a first time to do so and he was preparing he was planning. He wasn't coming at it. He didn't just simply just jump up on the rock and start climbing up. He knew that if he did so, he could very easily lose his life. This was a dangerous thing. And in order for him to ascend this, uh, uh, this, this sheer cliff, he had to have a process, he had to have a plan, and he had to be prepared for doing so. I enjoy working on cars and uh, different things in the garage. And when I go to work on those things, uh, and when I endeavor to have a job at hand, what do I do? I, we get the toolbox out. We make sure that we have the tools, the right wrenches, uh, the right sockets, all the different things that are needed in order for that job to be done. We prepare. We get things ready for what is set ahead. You know, the Bible teaches us that we are to be prepared for the decision-making process. That we ought to have a process and tools and uh, tools and a process in which we work ourselves through in a decision-making areas of our life. You know, parenting is a challenge. It's a blessing, but it's a challenge. Parenting is exciting. There's ups and there's downs. There's moments where you laugh, and there's moments in where you catch the tears. There's moments of rejoicing over triumph, and there's moments of, 
mourning over failures. There's a myriad of different uh, life events that go into parenting. But you know, when it comes to parenting, it actually should have some simple, basic thoughts or processes for it. When I, as my wife and I rear our boys, I've stated this often, but the number one thing that we want them to do or we want to instill in them, not want them to do, I can't force them to do, this is a decision they must make, is to love God. Now, I can't force them to love God. No parent can. And if you try to force it, it's not going to work out well. It needs to be patterned. You can example it. You can teach it. But ultimately, it comes up to that son or that daughter if they're going to love God. How important it is that we instill that. There's no one like our God. There's no one as incredible as He. How wonderful it is as a parent to teach the next generation to love God with all their heart and with all their mind. It's a powerful thing. But you know, there's a second process in which we should teach. We should not only teach and pattern and example a love for God, but there also ought to be a biblical framework put in place for decisions. So that way when life begins to envelop, and right now my wife and I make 95% of all the decisions, and sometimes more, for all of, for all of our boys. We chose... We, we choose how the electric is going to be paid. We choose where to live. We choose what cars they're going to be driving in. We choose what they're going to eat. We choose what they're going to breathe. No, uh, not quite. Although there are sometimes water. No, not, I, won't, I won't go there. Uh, but uh, we choose so much for them. We make the decisions for them. My wife cuts our boy's hair. And... There's some, uh, uh, my wife reminds them occasionally that uh, their head is not their own. Uh, their head is mine. Their head is, is ours. Until they leave our home, until they're paying their own bills, they're going to get the haircut that we want them to have. And if they don't like it, tough. Uh, that's what it's going to be. Uh, because we make the decisions for them. We make that role for them that is going to stay in. But you know, there's going to be a time in which they're going to begin to make decisions on their own. That they're going to choose where to go, what what university or seminary to go to. They're going to choose where to live and the career. And that percentage of decisions we make for them is going to be less and less and less and less. I'm not going to force them in anything. And by the way, any parent trying to force their will upon the child, especially after they've left the home, doesn't turn out well. God tells us that there's a time where the cords need to be cut. The ties need to be cut. And it's a time of where we get on our knees and pray and continue to pray. We pray for our boys. We pray for the future mates that our boys will have, the future spouses. I don't know what young women God is preparing for their hearts and for their lives one day, but we pray that their paths will cross and they will find that one 
that God has for them. We pray for yea, their direction and where they're going to go and what, they will, what God will place upon their heart. Never imposing our will, but rather trying to lead them through the decision-making process. Let me ask you, what is your process for decision-making? What will you do when it's time of a difficult situation needs to come? Don't, don't look in the back. Don't look, don't look back now. Uh, I know we all can look back and we can see times of regret. Put those aside. We're not thinking about those. We're thinking about times right now, moving forward. You can't change the decisions in the past, but you can move forward. What will you do with the framework of your decision-making? What will you do with the process that you instill for decision-making processes? At the end of life, I would rather state, I'm glad I did, rather than I wish I had. Or I'm glad I didn't, rather than I wish I hadn't. Can you think of some times in which you regret? I just told you not to look back, didn't I? Now, now I'm telling you to look back. Can you think of times in which you look back and you think, there's some decisions that I shouldn't have made. May I encourage you that you can change your decision-making process. You can make a decision that's based upon biblical principles. Peter and Paul came back to this theme over and over again across different people of that serious or a sober mind. A serious mind. You see, there's a tendency that happens towards a decision that comes. And the tendencies is to be guided by what? our emotions, circumstances. Sometimes it's not by biblical principle at all, but rather just an inner voice that kind of speaks to us, and we follow that inner voice. The world would call it, follow your heart. But God teaches us that there's a biblical procedure, that there's a biblical process. And often when God leads, often He leads the harder way. This has challenged me over the years. Often when God leads, He leads in a step of faith. A step that's going to spur growth, a step that's going to inspire, uh, uh, to spur uh, another level of depth in your relationship with God, often He leads in a harder way. And a sober mind, as God leads, will step back, assesses the situation, and prayerfully look to what God desires in this situation. You see, because we don't really know how the decision's going to come out. 
We might think we know, but we really don't. We have this very moment. I know what I'm doing at this very moment. But I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Nor do you. We don't know that. We can't know that. It's kind of like a minefield. It's kind of like walking through a field with all these different mines and trying to navigate your way through. That's kind of like the decision-making process. There's a man named Dennis Rainey. About 20-plus years ago, he wrote a book called Parenting Today's Adolescence. At that time, it was kind of cutting-edge material or cutting-edge teaching on rearing children, especially leaning towards uh, uh, teenage years and on. And the very first step in which he, the very first story that he told in a book was how he used an illustration as he preached of bear traps. And on this platform that they had, it was a large platform, he got some proper bear traps. And I'm talking about bear traps that you would put your, if you stepped in it, your off type bear traps. I mean, I'm serious, jaws, teeth, proper things. And he uh, had someone who knew what they were doing set up bear traps all over the platform, all over the platform. And as he set them up, he took his primary age son, took him to one side of the platform and put a blindfold on him. And then walked across the platform to the other side and called out to his son, walk to me. Your look is just like the look that his wife surely was given. I'm sure his wife was probably sitting there holding, holding the uh, uh, chair uh, with her knuckles white, about ready to scream, stop, stop. And he began to instruct his son. He says, son, listen. I want you to walk a couple of steps this way. One, two, stop. Move to the left. One step. Stop. Move three steps forward. Stop. And he navigated his son from one, end, one side of the platform with the blindfold all the way to the other side of the platform with all these bear traps around, navigating him through it to get to the other side. Now, he taught this as a parenting illustration about trust of a child with a parent and also the direction and training of a child to follow instructions of a parent. But there's a decision-making principle in there as well. And the principle is this, is that as we step out, we really don't know what's going to happen. We really don't know if we're about ready to take a step, and as we take a step, that trap is set, and we suddenly regret that we've made that decision. We, we don't know. A decision can be regretful. It might look good. It might seem like everything fits perfectly, but it may be a regret. 
We can look at the statistical probabilities of that step working out, but it's not always right. Have you ever been there where you've had all the, all the stats, you've had all the, all, all the figures all done out, everything should work, and then you take that step forward and it doesn't work? Have you ever been there? I've been there too many times. We've all been there. Statistics aren't always correct. In marriage, a husband and wife get married, or a man and woman get married, become husband and wife, and suddenly it is harder than they think it is. Marriage is work, especially when you're married to someone like me. It's work. A lot of things you got to work through. It's not easy. That man or that woman is not like you thought in many ways. Suddenly you realize that there were some things that they were hiding when they while you were dating. And then when you said I do, there's no more reason to put on a show or to hide. There's no area to hide. And suddenly you find out that marriage is not something that is without difficulty, but rather it is a time of ministering to that other person. Because they really are broken just like you're broken. It isn't about what I get, but it's about how I can minister to the wife ladies to the husband in which god gives you and it's figuring that out and working through those things you know child rearing is not easy when that decision to have a child is is had and a child is coming into the world (laughs) the statement of it can't be that hard suddenly nine months later becomes pretty trivial (laughs) Suddenly you realize the nights become very short. The cries get louder. Suddenly the care that is nearly constant and almost seemingly 24-7 is always there. And that only continues to grow and it continues uh, continues to even get more difficult as the years grow because Problems become more complex than just wiping your nose. Problems grow and come even deeper and more of a struggle. It's difficult. There's a lot of options. There's a lot of things to choose from. You know, there might be a million different things that we could do, but God has won for us. God has His will for us. Oh, we might be able to do a million different things, but God has a plan. God has a will. And we need to decide how we can, in a, with a sober mind, choose the, the will of God. Let me ask you, when the decision-making process begins, what is it that you trust most? Is it feelings or emotions Is it statistics? Or is it weighing the pros and cons and the pros kind of 
outweigh the cons, and so I'm going to go with this way because, after all, the pros seem better than the cons do at this point. What is it that our decision-making process is built upon? You see, we're walking blind. We don't know the outcome. We need a sober mind. I'm trying to get you to see how serious a decision is tonight. I want you to see three things this evening. First of all, I want you to see that we are decisional. We are decisional. What do we mean by that? Look at what the Bible says in Psalms chapter 1, please. A very familiar portion of Scripture, but I want you to see it tonight. Psalms chapter 1, look at verse number 1 with me. Blessed is the man that walketh. There's a decision. Choosing to walk, not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth. Again, there is a decision, an action, deciding to do what? To not stand in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Another decision. But his delight, there is another decision, is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate. There again is another decision, day and night. The Bible here speaks of the discerning man who is choosing to make some decisions. He's choosing not to partake in the counsel of the ungodly. He's choosing that he's not going to stand in the way of sinners. He's choosing not to sit in the seat of the scornful. He is choosing to delight in the law of the Lord. He is choosing to meditate in the law of God, to meditate in God, to meditate on Him day and night. He is choosing to do that. There is a decision process that is vital and key on it. You see, because we're on a journey, notice what the Bible continues to say here. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Stop there for just a moment. God never tells us that a decision that we're going to make today, if that is going to be instantaneously received. An instantaneous result, an instantaneous fruit. Notice he says like a tree planted. Let me ask you the question. If you were to take a seed and put it into the ground of a peach, would you walk back the next day and it be 20 feet tall with full of peaches the very next day? (laughs) No. It's going to take months to maybe even see a little sprout above the ground. It's going to take years before that tree is even ready to begin to produce fruit. It's going to take even more years for that peach tree to be able to produce the type of fruit that you want to see off of that fruit tree. It's not a simple process of just simply one day walking and expecting a full-grown peach tree the next it's not just a simple moment of choosing one day not to stand and the next day suddenly we see a bounty of fruit it's not simply saying one day i choose not to sit in the seat of the scornful and then suddenly see a a, a barrels of of ripe 
wonderful fruit. It's not simply just planting a seed of delighting in the law or meditating in the word of God and then suddenly seeing loads of fruit that next day, but rather it's that careful process of growing and staying faithful to that and choosing to do those things which are right. You see, it's a journey. It's not a process in which we simply choose one day and suddenly there's bounties of fruit. There are times where fruit seems to come very quickly, but there are times where it might take five years, it might take ten years, it might take fifty years. God teaches us that there are consequences for our decisions. You see, we are on a journey of life, and as we look at life, we will be able to see that our life has been summed up by by the consequences of a long string of decisions that have been put together. If you were to look at your life and look, trace it back to the beginning, it has been that, just that. It has been a series of choices that you have chosen to this point. You could string them all together to where you are today. The Bible teaches us in continuing in Psalms 1, the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. God tells us that a spiritual man will grow and will continue to make right decisions and continue to stay faithful among those decisions. And as he is faithful to that, one day fruit will come, one day fruit will arrive, one day fruit will be there. But the ungodly choose what? The fast and easy way. How quickly can I get there? What's the easiest path? I'm going to choose just the simplest and easiest way that feels right to me. I like it. I desire it. And that's what I'm going to do. And God tells us that that ungodly decision-making process will what? Perish. It will one day be gone. It will one day be left over. It will one day be that of looking back. And it will be like looking on the life of, uh, 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 of Scrooge before he chose to make some right decisions of a life that is just simply forgotten and simply just uh, rebuffed and uh, uh, pushed away. God tells us that right decisions are like planting a tree and watching it grow. Notice the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 8, verse number 17, I love them that love me, and those that seek me early shall find me we all have choices and we can choose to love the lord we can choose to seek the lord god says i love them that love me we have a myriad of decisions that we make in our life we have some educational decisions where we go to school how we're going to study what we're going to do to advance our studies after we finish school. Do we go to college? Do we go to university? Do we go to seminary? What are we going to do with the education that we 
have presented to us. We have vocational decisions. What career am I going to go into? What job am I going to choose? Where am I going to seek employment? How am I going to solidify my career into this area? Where am I going to, uh, when, uh, when or if am I, go am I going to take that promotion or, or, uh, or continue in that career that I've been given or that I've chosen? We have some relational decisions. Oh, how often we have relational decisions. How am I going to handle this situation with this colleague? How am I going to handle this situation with, uh, with this friend or this loved one? We have a lot of relational decisions that we make a lot. We have familial decisions in our own family. Who am I going to marry? Am I going to just choose to be faithful? Am I going to choose... Uh, how many children am I going to have? How, how am I going to rear my children? What's going to be our process as children? Or, or, or as I raise my children? How are we going to uh, uh, organize our home? And so on and so forth. We, are very, we have a lot of practical decisions. Am I going to get off on this road? Or am I going to get off on that road? Am I going to go down this direction? Am I going to apply this to this part of my life? Am I going to uh, 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 partake in this procedure to help me in maybe a career or maybe in, uh, uh, or, or maybe in uh, 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 organizing uh, my own life in some way? A lot of practical nature in which we deal with our own home and our own life. We have some geographical decisions. Where am I going to live? Where am I going to buy a home? Where am I going to rent? Where am I going to uh, uh, go to church? Where am I going to do this? A lot of geographical type decisions. Very directional decisions as well that we have. What I mean by directional is what will I live for? What will be my purpose? What am I going to choose to be my focus and my heart in life? Along with that, spiritual decisions. When am I going to read my Bible? When am I going to pray? How am I going to worship the Lord? When am I going to worship the Lord? I sing. How can I, how can I be a part of a ministry? And how can I be a, a help or serve as God sees fit? And we have a lot of spiritual decisions that we make. Then in our decisions, we have some missional decisions. What I mean by missional decisions is what will the mission of my life be? Not only what will I live for as far as what my goal is, but when it comes time to the end of it, what am I going to, what is, what is the purpose for? Has it been to invest and to forward the gospel, forward Christ in my heart and life and in others? What is my purpose? What is my mission in life going to be? Along with that, what is the missional values of my family going to be? What's our family's focus going to be? What are we about? What are we looking to do? Are we looking to serve the Lord or are we looking to go and do other things? 
we have a lot of decisions. We truly are decisional beings, if we can put it that way. I want you to write this statement down. If you have a piece of paper or a note beside, put write this down, please. I and others around me are subject to the long-term outcomes of my decisions. I and others around me are subject to the long-term outcomes of my decisions. Our decision doesn't affect just me. My decision doesn't affect just me. The decisions I make in life affect others. Your decisions affect others. That should put some sobriety to our thinking. That should help us to enlarge our scope and how important the decisions in which we make are. We need a sober mind. We need to think through and make sure that we are taking the step forward that God wants us to take. We, want, we ought to have a heart that is desiring to follow what God desires. Years ago, there was an NBA pa- a basketball player named A.C. Green. He was a Christian. He played for the uh, Lakers. And as a Christian... He, uh, of course, traveled with this team. He was married. and He chose to be faithful to his wife. He chose that no matter where he was, no matter what situation, he was going to be faithful to his wife. This is in a day and age in which it hasn't diminished, but where rampant fornication truly was prevalent throughout the NBA. So the time of mistresses in multiple cities, prostitutes being hired. It was a time in which there was just rampant sinfulness. Very immoral. His teammates would rile on him for his decision and his choosing to be faithful to his wife and would poke fun or to try to uh, buy or get him to buy into the thought of becoming unfaithful. And they would do so to such extremes that they would even hire prostitutes, have them snuck into his hotel room so when he would come home from a game, come home from practice, and would open the door of his hotel room, suddenly the prostitute would be there. That's the type of things that he dealt with on this team but he was faithful suddenly the news broke and you may remember this has been some years back where magic johnson was diagnosed with hiv and because of the diagnosis everyone in the team would then be testing A.C. Green said, I don't need to be tested. I've been faithful. His teammates looked and said, there's no way. There's no way. He says, no, I've been faithful. 
I don't need to be having my blood work done. I don't need to be treated for any of these uh, STDs. I don't need to be treated for any of those things because I've been faithful to my wife. My wife's been faithful to me. We have been faithful to one another. I don't need to be treated. And at that moment, he recognized the results of his decision. He said this. This is such a powerful statement. He said every human being is given the power of choice. When we make our choice, that choice often has the power over us. Think about that for just a moment. When we choose to do something, that choice will often drag us through or lead us through. We are decisional. And those decisions are very important, very vital that we make in biblical process. Reese, as we continue through the sober mind, I want you to see, secondly, we are dependent. What do we mean by that? Look at 2 Timothy, if you would, please, with me. Chapter 1, verse number 6. The Bible says, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Why did Paul teach Timothy that we are not given a spirit of fear? Because he struggled with fear. He was a young pastor. He struggled with it. And Paul was trying to direct his heart from acting upon fear to but of what? But of power and of love and of a sound mind. He was trying to help Timothy understand that he needed to be dependent not upon the spirit of fear that his heart was prone to, but rather upon the solid love and the solid focus of knowing God and trusting in what God has for us. You see, God has direction for our lives. God has a plan. God has a direction in which He wants to lead our lives. And God teaches us that those steps are to be ordered by the Lord. In Psalm 37, verse number 23, the Bible says, The steps of a good man are what? Ordered by the Lord. And he delighteth in his way. Notice the Bible says, He delighteth. Let me just attach these pronouns here so we can make sure that we understand this because so often we come to some thinking that is not scriptural in that my way is awesome, but God's way stinks. It's terrible. There's a type of thinking today that God's will is going to simply take us to some remote part of Africa, living on a dirt floor and a thatched roof that's been leaking and water puddling underneath where we're going to be sleeping. There's snakes and spiders crawling in and all around us. We're ministering to some half-naked tribe that's just in the remote part of the jungle, and that is always God's will. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says he, that he is referring to the good man. He 
The good man delighteth in his way. Whose way? The Lord's way. You see, God's way is awesome. He is, his way is guaranteed without regret. Our way is guaranteed without regret. But God's way is always blessing. It always completes us. It always perfects us. It fits us better than what we could ever envision. God's way perfects us. Our way brings regret. Oh, how we need to be dependent upon the Lord for our decisions. I'm reminded of James chapter 4, verse number 6. But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. You see, a sober mind looks at the decisions and says, these are big decisions. I can't just flip a coin and just see which way the coin lands, and that determines which way I should go. But rather, it's a humble heart that weighs the decision and chooses to become dependent upon God. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 6, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. The Bible says that God does not hide his will. He wants us to rather to focus by faith upon his will and know that his will is what is best for our lives. His will is a reward that diligently seek him as we seek the lord and become dependent upon god god rewards us with his will his will is not something that strips away our delight but rather builds our delight in the lord what an incredible thing that is but it happens through faith it happens through action on uh, this past weekend of course with easter we get an easter egg hunt with our boys and they scattered looking for Easter eggs, and they were able to find all the easy ones right away. But there were some hard ones that they looked and looked and looked and looked and looked and looked and looked for. There were some ones that were a little difficult, and God's will isn't like that. God's will isn't something that one has to look and look and look and is difficult to find, but rather God shows as we are dependent upon Him. He says, I want you to see my will. His will isn't something that he keeps from us and says, oh, you almost found it. I'm going to take it away now. That's not, that's not God. God is our good father. He wants us to do his will. He wants us to be in his will. And he truly wants us to depend upon him. And as we seek him, he gives us that sober mind to truly to make the right decisions. Lastly, we are destined we are destined. Look at 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy, excuse me, chapter 1, verse number 9. I've got to hasten uh, here this evening. The Bible says, Who has saved us and called us with an holy calling? Not according to our works. What does that mean? That means we can't do anything or we haven't done anything to deserve this holy calling. God hasn't called us because of who I am or because of who you are, but because of his great salvation, because of who he is but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. God's calling upon us was truly orchestrated before eternity began. 
Think about that for a moment. In eternity past, God's will was orchestrated, and you are a part of that. Think of how valuable that makes you to God. In eternity past, God had a will that he planned, and you are a part of that. What an incredible thing it is that God makes us valuable to his will. Now, God's will is going to happen with or without us. But he wants us to be given a choice, and he gives us a choice to, be, to play a role or to be a part of the given role of his will. So let me ask you, do you want into that? Do you want eternal significance? Do you want your life to be more than paying bills? Going to the cemetery? Do you want your life to have some eternal significance here? God has called us with a holy calling. And God decided to put value upon you and me. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse number 5, the Bible says, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Before Jeremiah was even born, God knew Jeremiah. God placed a holy calling upon his life. He had given him a destiny. He had given him a focus and a will to live. And it was his to live. And to live it was. It was a hard destiny, Jeremiah's was. Jeremiah had a difficult destiny, but God had a purpose and a plan for it. And Jeremiah fulfilled that. The Bible tells us in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse number 10, For thus saith the Lord, that after 70, uh, 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you, in causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Remember, God is writing this to people who are going into Babylon, who are going into uh, captivity. And God says, I know you're going to have trials. I know you're going to have difficulties. I know you're going to have circumstances in which are going to trouble you in Babylon. But I want you to be reminded that it's going to work out for good, that I've got my good for you in place. God truly has his good purpose for you and I. You see, his heart, God's heart and purposes can be trusted. In Psalms 139, verse number 14, about I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. In Ephesians chapter 1, in verses number 3 through 12, we don't have time to look at it all this evening, but as you look through this portion of Scripture, read it later, you'll see that we are chosen before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, God had a choice, or, or, or God chose us. God put a, 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 a predestined, and some take this way in a wrong way, on a Calvinistic line that we don't have any choice about that. And that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches God does have a will. God teaches us that we are part of that, and God gives us a choice to be a part of that will. He doesn't force us. Now, He knows what decisions we're going to make. He knows 
the outcomes of those decisions are going to make. He knows exactly what is going to take place, and he allows us to choose in all that. How all that works together between what God has already knows what's going to take place and how he gives us liberty to choose, that is something that one day we're going to have to talk around the table with God and, and, and learn a little bit about that. Uh, it's something that we just have to accept by faith that God truly has a will, a purpose, and a plan, and yet he gives us a choice to be a part of that plan while yet knowing what choice is going to be. He's an incredible God. And every person truly that is saved, that is a born-again child of God, has a predestined or has been chosen by God to have a part in his holy calling. Oh, my friends, we ought to have a sober mind. We ought to know and ought to have a heart that is desirous to have a serious mind when it comes to decisions. I read this earlier today, a devotional by Oswald Chambers, known, If Thou Hadst Known. And he speaks of Luke chapter 19, as Jesus looks over Jerusalem, and as he looks over Jerusalem, he says, If thou hadst known, right there, unto, right there defies all the logic of the Calvinist. Jesus says, I had a purpose and I had a plan but you chose not to be a part of it. How can that be, Calvin, uh, how, how, how can God have uh, predestined someone to heaven and predestined someone to hell if he says, I wanted you to do something, but you did not? I wanted you to be cared for, but you chose not to be. That doesn't coincide with a Calvinistic point of view. In this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. Oswald Chambers says this, he says, If thou hadst known, goes direct to the heart, with the tears of Jesus behind. These words imply culpable responsibility. God holds us responsible for what we do not see. Does that not convict? I don't know about you, but that convicts me. God holds us responsible for what we do not see. Because the disposition has never been yielded, the unfathomable sadness of the might have been, God never opens doors that have been closed. He opens others' doors. Speaking of moving forward. But he reminds us that there are doors which we have shut. Doors which need never have been shut. Imaginations which ne need never have been sullied. Never be afraid when God brings back the past. Let memory have its way. It is a minister of God with its rebuke and chastisement and sorrow. God will turn the might have been into a wonderful culture for the future. How important it is for us to have a sober mind. A sober mind. May we understand the, brevity, the, the, the importance of our decisions. To be serious minded when it comes to our decisions. God indicates over and over again in his word and 
teaches us that a sober mind is vital to the decision-making process. The first tool we need to break up out of the toolbox of a decision-making process is a sober mind. May I encourage you to choose to do so. May I encourage you to take this to store it. Maybe you're not in front of a decision right now. Maybe you're not in front of a choice right now. Put it in your mental filing cabinet. Let me put it that way. Put it in a hard drive. Teach someone else. What are you going to do with this? As we look through the decision-making process, what will you do with this? Is this going to be something in which we just simply ignore and rebuff, or is it something that we're going to embrace and say, God, I want to make right decisions. I want to do decisions right. God, I need your help with this. I'm depending upon you with a sober mind. This is something that you can teach, and it needs to be taught to others. We need to... We need parents to teach their children this we need older spiritual uh, 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 christians to teach us the younger younger spiritual christians that's why i'm teaching it tonight so we have a biblical framework to do decisions right may i encourage you tonight to be sober-minded when it comes to a decision